From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair podcast, Friday edition, a very special edition, special guest today. But first, we'll kick off with our usual bit here. Zach, what have you been reading on the site that you've absolutely loved? So I think the highlight for me of the last week or so was a really fun piece that hit on a trend or just a, a kind of piece of cocktail culture that I find really fascinating. Uh, and that was a piece by uh, Leanna Taylor called uh, Tingly Tongues, Music and Sense Behind the Rise of Multisensory Cocktails. And I can't recall, Joanna, if it was while you were on leave or not that I talked about a drink I'd had recently. The Sichuan Buds, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Right. So so that that those pop up in this piece, um, this whole con- kind of idea of these cocktails as almost performance art is is sort of laced throughout. I, I think there's, you know, it's fascinating to me because there's always been an element of a sort of cocktail as a multisensory uh, concept, right? You know, we talk about the visual appeal of drinks a lot and how, you know, certainly in this social media driven era, it's kind of supercharged the importance of the visual component. Uh, but, you know, to go even beyond that into sort of the some of the other ways in which uh, bartenders and, and cocktail bars and stuff are playing with you know, kind of incorporating as many of your senses as possible into the drinking experience. You know, it's it's equal parts at times kind of alluring and gimmicky, but like that's kind of always been a part of bartending. Like we think about the, the flair bartending sort of mm-hmm. fad or whatever. And, you know, people undoubtedly looked at it as sort of, again, maybe some part like this is a little corny, but also it's kind of cool. And so I think, you know, it was just fun to kind of read about how that same general concept has kind of come back again and again in cocktails and we're definitely in this phase now especially with tiktok and things like that we're not just a static image on instagram but whether it's a tiktok video or real whatever that that sort of additional performative element is definitely a not the only thing driving cocktail culture forward of course but is definitely a part of the conversation yeah it feels very important today too right for sure how about you yeah uh we've you know, published a lot of great stuff on this site this week, but something that was, you know, pretty, pretty serious and took over, <laughs> took up a lot of my time this week <laughs> was a breaking news story um, about Anchor Brewing Company um, being liquidated by Sapporo USA. And uh, this is a piece by Dave Infante that was broken on Tuesday night. And funny thing, we happen to have Dave joining us here right now. Dave, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me, guys. (laughs) It's always great to have you join us for a riveting chat around drinks. I have nothing interesting to say. I will not rivet you. I'm sorry. I'm on a riveting (laughs) strike, actually. Oh, my goodness. Well, you're saving all the riveting for your own podcast, I assume. Yes. Dave also has his (laughs) own podcast called Tap Lines. If you haven't listened, please do. Another great beer pod like comment subscribe rate it yes five stars only any ratings below five stars just don't bother don't put it in there <laughs> yeah. dave is basically just like an uber driver for the history of beer <laughs> yeah right right exactly i just like kind of send like passive aggressive like please slash threats your way until you give me five stars and tip 20 percent without looking at the subtitle Okay, Dave. So let's kind of get to the matter at hand here, Dave. And and that's sort of the story of how this iconic San Francisco brewery, which kind of often touted itself as America's original craft brewery, been brewing beer for over 100 years, survived, you know, fires and economic downturns and prohibition and all this stuff, is now 
at best on life support, likely probably dead, and relatively swiftly after being purchased by a beer company that I think at least when the purchase was made, there was some hope that perhaps they would be, that Sapporo would be, you know, amenable or, you know, kind of stewards of the brand. And that clearly has not really happened. So so as far as you can tell, they've kind of like, what was Sapporo's game plan here and what went wrong? Man, so, right. It's a great question. There's obviously a lot of layers there, but just, you know, like to set the stage here, Sapporo buys Anchor in 2017. Um, it had previously been owned for about the you know the previous seven years by two liquor industry vets, uh, guys who I think worked on Sky Vodka together, uh, Keith Gregg yeah. and, and Tony Foglio. Um, and then prior to that, it had been owned by uh, a, you know, Fritz Maytag um, from 1965 through 2010 when he sold it. Um, the Maytag era is Anchor's best and sort of most formative era. And, and that's where that moniker, you know, first America's first craft brewery comes from. Under Maytag, um, he establishes much more consistency for the beers. He finds sort of a way to market what we now think of as craft beer, which was obviously not really a thing back in 1965. These full flavored, you know, quality ingredients locally produced beers uh, that, that he was able to get that he was able to get people excited about. Right. So um, anyway, that's the modern era for, for anchor. And when Sapporo enters the scene in November, 2017 makes the, you know, the acquisition news known for a provisional, I think 85 million um, it was. Um, yeah, you're right, Zach. Like there was this idea that Sapporo, unlike um, other you know, macro brewers or what the industry calls strategic partners, um, that Sapporo would be a steward for Anchor. And, and you know, the Japanese conglomerate was sort of held itself out as and was perceived in the industry as being more patient, more legacy focused, more quality focused than, uh, you know, the implication uh, would be like more so than, and, you know, the more rapacious, uh, uh, bottom line oriented, budget cutting um, uh, portfolio managers at Anheuser-Busch InBev, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Like that was the that was the big contrast that was drawn, I think, n- maybe explicitly at times by Sapporo USA itself, but really more that's how they were perceived in the industry at the time. Um, they got into craft brewing later. They, they didn't they were seen less of as a, a Johnny come lately and more of um you know, a, a corporation that was getting into it for the right reasons rather than just jumping on a trend. Um, and so that's the rose colored picture that we kind of start out with at Anchor. Uh, six years on, obviously, we're talking about this this company being, you know, at death's door as, as Sapporo USA has announced that it plans to turn the company over to a liquidator. Um, as we record this, there's still maybe some chance at uh, uh, like a miracle acquirer coming out of the woodwork. But for all intents and purposes, the path that Anchor is on is now to be uh, to be unwound as a business. Um, and what happens in between is kind of a, I don't know, a tragic comedy of, of errors of corporate management and um, misaligned expectations and um, you know, just some basic gaffes, I think some mis- like just flat out mistakes, um, informed by incompetence or, uh, confusion or miscommunication or whatever the case may be that I think, you know, um, 
added up over time, compounded over time to, to create what was, what turned out to be an insurmountable set of obstacles for a brewery that was already facing a lot of challenges. Um, and that's, I think, in a limited amount of fairness to Sapporo USA, um, you know, it's true that Anchor has challenges and, and has for a while. And I've written about it, I've reported on them before. It's, you know, it's an old brewery. It's an old building. It's in the middle of one of the most expensive cities in the country. Um, it, its portfolio is not, you know, unfortunately you're not like, it's not very well aligned with where mainstream American tastes are right now when it comes to fermented, you know, beverages. Um, you know, it's very ale focused at a time when everyone is skewing light and sweet. Um, you know, there's, there's challenges there. That's definitely true. Um, but what we see between 2017 and 2023 is kind of a evolving pattern of, um, you know, Sapporo USA, uh, mismanaging the, the, um, the, the property, the asset that they bought in Anchor. Um, and workers say that, you know, when when push came to shove, like Sapporo really wasn't the type of benevolent partner that, uh, that you know, was expected of them um, and that people had hoped for. I guess what I'm I'm wondering, though, is so earlier in June, um, news broke that Anchor was going to stop making its Christmas seasonal ale and um, which has been brewed for a really long time and also um, discontinue its national distribution. Why even like surely by that point they knew they were going to close the brewery. Um, Why do you think they made that decision, Dave? Man, (laughs) that's a really good question. I think that that was sort of, I mean, I don't want to take too much credit here. I, I broke that story on a Friday night, um, and I'm not totally clear on what their plan was before that story started getting traction. It's possible yeah. that they did not intend to make an announcement around that. And that would, I, I mean, that would be the logical move, right? Like the most logical thing would just be to like pretend all was well and never, you know, tell the workers that they were canceling anchor and then just wind the business down in mid July, you know, without ever acknowledging it. And that way you don't have to say, Hey, we're a big, bad corporation. And we, you know, we stole Christmas and you can just be like, Oh man, like the business didn't work out. People are pissed at us, but like, at least we didn't have this like weird two-step, right. Where we, everyone gets mad at us. We say we're like retrenching in California, which is what they announced at the time. And, and then a month later, you know, we're pulling the plug entirely, right? Like there's, it, it makes no sense really. And I have to imagine that some of it was informed by the amount of sort of popular inquiry that, that, um, that people started hitting them with and be like, wait, what is going on here? Like, what are you talking about? Um, like they, like employees, I suppose thought they, sorry, go ahead. Like employees asking them that. Well, the employees already knew. I, I had tipsters sources at Anchor who were who were current workers, and they were aware, right? So, like the the TikTok on this is not exactly. I can't put dates to it, but workers began reaching out to me in early June, saying, "Hey, they're they're not going to brew Anchor. They're not going to brew our special ale, which is the name of the Christmas season, the official name of the Christmas seasonal." which has been annually brewed since 1975. It has a hand-drawn label. It is a 
a uh, holiday ritual that the brewery has long been synonymous with, introduced by Fritz Maytag in, in you know uh, in 1975. It's a beloved seasonal product. It is typically very successful, in my understanding. It is also just an enormous brand building exercise. Like people, it's synonymous with Anchor, like I said. Um, so the workers already know. And in fact, my reporting shows more recently, I learned uh, from a current Anchor worker that the company had already purchased the ingredients for 2023's Christmas seasonal. They were going to start laying down batches of it um, because they have to ship it to international markets. I mean, this thing was just enormously popular and it's a, kind of a calling card for the brewery. So it went everywhere. I would think, I think the first shipment was going to go to Sweden or something, but um, so they already had the ingredients, the spruce tips, the special spices, et cetera, et cetera. When word came down from above that actually they weren't going to be brewing it, which gave the lie to Anchor's stated reason for discontinuing uh, uh the special ale, our special ale, which was that it was, you know, cost considerations. It's like, well, okay, hang on a second. Like if, if this thing is too expensive to produce, first of all, you know, I've got some questions about how you back your brewery into such dire financial straits that brewing one batch of one seasonal or one year of one seasonal, uh, that's immensely popular is enough to, you know, potentially render you insolvent. Like that's kind of the the big macro question, right? Is like, how did you, how did you wind up here? But the micro question is like, is your communication with your workforce that strained or that convoluted or, or incapable that you've, you've not communicated to them that you're not brewing this beer until such time that like they've already, you know, acquired the ingredients down at the brew house at presumably, you know, that, that cost that you were concerned about. It just doesn't it doesn't square. I feel like this has to be taken as a part of the sort of broader narrative that you've sketched out for us, Dave, which is, you know, this lack of communication or confusing communication between, you know, sort of the corporate higher ups and the people who actually ran the brewery. And, and you, you know, you kind of illustrate it with this story about the special ale. But I also think there's also a, a communication breakdown between the brewery itself or, or the brand and its customers. Right. And I mean, another piece of the story has to be what what's going to be considered one of the most kind of uh, ill-fated rebrands slash redesigns ever. Um, the, you know, change from the iconic sort of long-standing packaging to what I think most people have considered sort of like a cheap twisted D knockoff. Like how <laughs> you're talking to people like, does, do, do people around anchor, you know, the workers there, do they, do they think of the, the sort of, literal packaging kerfuffle is more of like a indicative of a bigger problem or itself driving some of the struggles that the brewery has faced over the last, you know, two years. The rebrand was a disaster. I think in, in hindsight and really even as soon as it hits in January, 2021, it's pretty clear that it misses the mark on recontextualizing this historic legacy brand to, you know, a modern audience. It's, it's very, the colors are very oversaturated the um, the the sort of visual language of it is is very juvenile and uh, iterative or reductive uh, based on you know its competitors or its its peers in the marketplace and yeah I mean Anchor Steam which for for years and years 
carried the sort of homespun rustic label that was deliberately, you know, it was hand, it was a hand drawn label and, and it came in that, that brown bottle with the sloped shoulders. Um, it, it did, it just wound up looking like twisted tea. It had this like oversaturated yellow and the Navy uh, and it, it was, it looked terrible. Right. And I think that that's just the reality. And I think that that's a problem in the marketplace because we know that consumers purchase you know, beverage alcohol in part based on, uh, based on, you know, the packaging. So there's, they, you're going to face some challenge in the marketplace for that. But to your second point, I think like the bigger issue is that it demonstrated, um, pretty, I think like pretty emphatically that upper management at the company, um, which by this point, you know, fully support USA, uh, you know, they took over in 2017. They are now four years, three and a half years in. Um, so, you know, there's no kind of, I don't think it's really feasible or reasonable to say like, well, they had just taken over. Maybe this was in motion, you know, before they took over, blah, blah, blah. Like this, the buck stops here type of thing. And like, I think you mm-hmm. have to put that at Sapporo USA's feet, um, because, you know, they either signed off on it or they should have been signing off on it type of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it demonstrates that they just don't really understand what brewery they bought or its significant yeah. market its significance in the marketplace. Um, they they double down on it. They refuse to go back on it. They they put out you know uh, statements in defense of the of the rebrand. Um, you know, one worker told me that it was uh, a project for people upstairs, quote unquote, which is like the white collar offices above the the brew house. Um, it was a project in the, in the month that followed to scrape social media, just to find positive reactions to the rebrand. So it could be presented to Sapporo executives as a success, um, Sapporo Mm -hmm. Japan executives as a success. Um, so this is kind of a, a situation where, you know, the market is quickly telling you, Hey, we don't, we don't like this. We don't want this. We don't appreciate what you're doing to, to anchor, uh, this, this iconic and, and beloved brand that represents our city. Um, and instead of, you know, uh, as the kids say, taking the L and moving on, um, they, they kind of, they kind of dig their heels in, I'm told. And, um, workers tell me that, you know, for months and months after people come to the, to the brewery and go on these famous tours, these brewery tours that Anchor has done for many, many years, you know, obviously now that's a pretty common trait of a, of a brewery, but, Anchor was instrumental in sort of like touring people around a, a brew house. That wasn't a thing when they started doing it. And they're, the tour guides are very, uh, very, very well educated. They're part of the Anchor Brewing Union. Um, it's a really big part of the Anchor experience. Anyway, people would come to the come to the, the uh, tours and just beg and plead and demand from the tour guides like information about what the company was doing about these labels. Will you bring back the old logo? Will you print t-shirts with the old logo just so I can buy one, you know, cause my dad loved anchor. I get that you might not be like putting it on the beers anymore, but what about souvenirs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which just really shows you, I think on one hand, how much people loved anchor and, and loved what it stood for. And on the other, you know, wherever that feedback was going, it was ultimately falling on deaf ears because, the company, uh, you know, as, as of yet, and I mean, throughout this entire process, as far as I'm, as far as I'm aware, has never really entertained the notion of, of bringing back the old label. Um, so I think it's both, 
a problem in itself in terms of, you know, sales and, and, you know, differentiating oneself or the, the brand in the marketplace in a crowded field. Um, and then I think it's also indicative or emblematic of the uh, sort of sclerosis that, you know, has kind of taken over at that point, the relationship between rank and file workers and uh, Anchor and Sapporo Brass and also the the customer base in Anchor and Sapporo Brass. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it just, it just strikes me as just this crucial lack of understanding this brand and thinking that they could just make it, you know, something to appeal to young people like, uh, like your twisted tea. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about with this is, you know, for a, a little while here, we thought that Anchor was going to be sold off to another brand. Um, that didn't end up being the case. Um, apparently it was on the table and they tried to sell it, but nothing came to fruition. And I was just wondering why, why you think that is Dave? Yeah. So, I mean, it's tough to do this type of reporting and I'm not nearly as good at it as like, you know, the, the breaking news reporters who work at the cop shop at a major newspaper, but like this stuff's really iterative, right? You get stuff in, you run, you run on it as much as you can. And then you update when you, you know, you find out new information. So we got some information, I guess it would have been Tuesday morning. The news, you know, the official release goes out Wednesday at 4.45 AM Eastern time. Um, we publish our first story on anchor at like 6 PM or strike that 3 p.m. Oh shoot, 6 p.m. Eastern time. 6 p.m. Right? So we <laughs> yeah we we scoop the news uh, from the, the brewery itself. And at the time, I had a tip in from what I thought to be a credible source, um, suggesting that there you know this crisis was going to be averted, um, and you know there was an acquirer waiting in the wings. Um, you know there had been talk. Other sources had told me there had been talks with. Um, Sierra Nevada Brewing Company in Chico, California, and then Russian River Brewing Company um, in the Russian River Valley. I forget exactly what the name of the town is. Um, both of which would have been plausible fits for uh, acquirers. Sierra Nevada, of course, is um, you know one of the biggest craft breweries in the country. It's owned by uh, or it's founded by Ken Grossman, um, who was an acolyte of Fritz Maytag's. Uh, you know, when when Fritz was running Anchor, he kind of came up with him and was mentored by him. And then Russian River Brewing Company is run by the Chalurzo family, uh, the, you know, Vinny and Natalie. Um, and um, they are, you know, uh, uh, a younger couple, I guess, at least compared to the first generation of craft brewery owners. Um, you know, a lot of energy. Russian River has been successful on its own terms. It has a lot of experience and understands how to manage legacy brands. They're, those are, you know, potential fits, right? Like that. And so that was plausible. My source, the new source that came in, um, suggested that it might actually wind up going to another Bay Area brewery called Drake's um, Brewing Company, which had just recently in February 2023 acquired the recipes and intellectual property of Bear Republic, um, which oh, okay. you know, they shut down the brew house, but then uh, they're going to continue to brew Racer 5 at Drake's, right? So, okay, that's another that's another brewery that is in the M&A you know, they're in the M&A mode right now. They may have uh, investors that, you know, want them to keep being aggressive and scoop up assets. Like that kind of tracks, right? So we ran with it as a 
potential. Um, we hedged, I think, you know, appropriately or enough that, you know, we made it clear that it wasn't a for sure thing. Um, and if we're guilty of, or if I'm guilty of anything, it's probably of being a little too optimistic that that might still happen. Um, you know, I think like at that point, workers had been saying to me with some certainty, like, Hey, this is over. It's over. It's over. Um, and you know, no one knew for sure, but the possibility was still at least theoretically on the table, um, right up until the end that, that the brewery was going to get sold. Okay, Dave, you mentioned a few different kind of other iconic craft producers in California, but the one that we haven't talked about yet, which is most kind of directly tied to this is Stone, uh, which is also owned by Sapporo USA, was purchased more recently. And I want to talk about Stone through two lenses. The first is the sort of notion that I think has arisen out of your reporting of late, which is that maybe one of the main issues for Anchor was that perhaps Sapporo purchased the brewery thinking they could produce Sapporo in the U.S., at that brewery and came to learn, well, actually, like, it's not at all set up to do that, which means, okay, we need a different brewery, Enter Stone, better set up to brew Sapporo, the kind of the more golden child, uh, when both were operational, and now, presumably, the brand that will continue to move forward in the marketplace. So, so first of all, you know, does that track? And second of all, if you were someone who was, say, um, concerned about what this m- news might mean for stone as a brand moving forward like do you think those concerns are valid or do you think no they're in a much different position than anchor was i think stone is you know if i'm a rank and file worker at stone what i'm most concerned about right now is what happens to anchors employees who are not protected by anchor brewing union um and and may are not guaranteed severance from anchor as it liquidates um i think stone as a as a going concern in the sapporo portfolio is sitting pretty. I don't, I don't think, I don't get the sense based on my reporting so far that there's any reason that Sapporo would be, you know, looking to uh, fold stone or to, to, um, you know, pare it back or whatever. I think the opposite is true. I think that, um, you know, stone as it, you know, comes online as a Sapporo asset after being acquired um, or announcing its acquisition in June, 2022, um, I think Stone becomes the golden child in that portfolio. There, it's the shiny new toy. Um, it has, you know, tremendous capacity compared to Anchor, which is just doesn't have the volume capacity that Stone does with its big San Diego plant and its other plant here in Richmond, Virginia. They've got a bi-coastal footprint because of that, uh, that Richmond, Virginia plant that Stone, you know, built only what, like six or seven years ago. So it's brand new too. And then, yeah, to your point, I mean, Anchor workers tell me that, Stone or Sapporo gets into this acquisition of Anchor and the deal is done and they apparently come in and are like, all right, like let's start brewing Sapporo, which is a rice lager. Um, and Anchor workers are like, well, what are you talking about? We uh, <laughs> pretty pretty famously brew ales here. Um, we're open fermentation. We don't have lagering cellars. Um what do you mean? And so that's kind of like, you know, if you want to call it the original sin, maybe of what kind of hamstrings the relationship between Sapporo USA and Anchor is that it does not appear that Sapporo either did their due diligence or, or maybe their strategy changed. But like this is this and workers describe it to me as an enormous oversight 
um, that really you can't retrofit your way out uh, of because. But they tried, this, right? They tried kind of. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Anchor is this, you know, it's it's in the middle of San Francisco. It's on Portrero Hill. It's on this it's in this historic building. There's no land available nearby. You can't just like build a bigger factory. It's a well-developed post-industrial city. Um and the building itself requires, you know, needs a, a ton of maintenance. Like it, it, it's not falling apart, but it's like it's well loved and well used, and like it's not an efficient new, you know, building. Right? This is all part of the deal, very transparent, very upfront. Like that, that Sapporo buys. Um, but once they realize that they're not going to be able to brew Sapporo, you know, at any reasonable or, or attractive volume at Anchor. Um, this kind of becomes the situation where like, okay, well, like, what are you doing with this brewery then? And Stone obviously is very capable of brewing Sapporo and it has much more capacity has, is in, especially here in Richmond, Virginia, where, where Sapporo is currently pursuing an expansion of that plant, or at least entertaining the idea of an expansion of that plant. Um, they, they have room to grow and, and upgrade, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, it, it, you know, the calculus, I think, shifts pretty, pretty substantially um, internally uh, when Sapporo gets its hands on stone. Stone becomes, uh, you know, the bell of the ball, so to speak. And Anchor, which was already a point of frustration for Sapporo by that point, after, you know, stepping on the rake with the rebrand and fighting the union in a very progressive pro-labor town like San Francisco, which won them no favors amongst the customer base. Um, you know, Sapporo has no love loss and like, it seems as though they just, based on what workers tell me, uh, develop a very cold shoulder towards anchor and, and their, you know, um, the, the way they allocate resources begins to reflect that. That sucks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, you can just like, you can totally imagine like how that relationship sours and then what that means for the people who are actually working there, you know? Like, and how awful that must have been. I think it's terrible. Well, and you kind of become a hospice worker in a way that you don't anticipate, right? It's very, you know, especially I think for, I mean, you could you could say better than us, Dave, because you have a lot of contacts at Anchor. But, you know, I think with these kind of very beloved, longstanding institutions in beverage alcohol, beer otherwise, you know, for a lot of people who get into them, especially later on in the game, part of the allure is working at this brand that does have this long history that does have this incredible connection in particular to San Francisco and to the surrounding communities of, you know, it's this iconic beer there. And to be the people who kind of have to, you know, kind of send it off into the night is I'm sure, you know, it's sad if nothing else. Um, I mean, but sad and a lot of other things too. I I do want to ask one more question though, Dave, of you on, on this topic, um, which is, you know, in the way that Sapporo USA has tried to portray this move, you know, they have put a lot of the blame on uh, the cost of living in and inflation and, you know, sort of broader macroeconomic issues that that really just, you know, they just their hands were tied. There was nothing they could do. They're just kind of, well, it sucks, but like, we're just going we to have to move on. Yeah. And, you know, you've talked about, obviously, the unionization at the brewery. I think it's probably pretty clear that that was uh, changed the some of the economic uh, calculus for support USA as relates to anchor. But do you give any credence to some of what they've put out there in terms of the, the explanations they've given or, or do you, or yeah, just how do you, what's your read on that? 
I think that there's some broad credence there. I, I don't think it's completely beyond, like, credulity that Anchor was facing challenges that were bigger than, you know, uh, uh, than just Anchor. You know, I think that a lot of the industry is facing similar challenges that, you know, Anchor's uh, third-party crisis PR guy, Sam Singer, flicked to in the, the release that they sent out, right? There are there are uh, the market for craft beer has been flat to slightly down, um, especially for uh, the types of beers that Anchor is best at producing. Um, the pandemic indisputably hammered uh, uh, the on-premise um, you know channel for beer, where Anchor was extremely strong because it was a very mm-hmm. established brand that was only started to be packaged in the in the late seventies. I mean, it, it was a draft product entirely until, you know, Fritz Maytag introduced package, uh, I think in 78. So they lose all that volume, right. Um, as we see that huge shift to, to grocery, to off, off premise during the pandemic, Anchor is not as well equipped to take advantage of that as many younger, uh, younger breweries were right that are built for off-premise and built for that business model. Um, I think the price of operating in San Francisco is a little bit of a riddle. There, uh, it really depends on understanding how Sapporo structured the deal with Anchor um, and where that those property uh, assets are and how they're you know sort of being. Uh, uh, valued and, and what they're actually costing Sapporo. My understanding, um, based on sort of what I've heard from workers, although to be fair, I have not dug into Sapporo's financials to, to really try to suss this out. My understanding is that the, the Potrero Hill Brewery um, is a separately owned property from the Public Taps, which is their very popular like tap room that's directly next door. Um, because that's actually a separate company. Um, so I'm not sure what's on Sapporo's books and how much it's costing them. Um, but it is true that San Francisco is an expensive place to operate a brewery. Uh, it's not easy to get trucks in and out of there. Uh, you, you know, specialty equipment, specialty, uh, service people to work on this old building. I would certainly believe that it's more expensive than operating, for example, this new facility that Stone has out here in Richmond, Virginia. But that was true in 2017 when Sapporo acquired exactly. Anchor. Like the, the the terms didn't change, right? Like that's not I, I am dubious of the idea that the costs of operating this ballooned by orders of magnitude in a way that no one could have predicted at Sapporo. I mean, again, we're not talking about like a mom and pop like operation that got in over their heads with like, you know, uh, uh, cheap debt and then like have to flip the keys back to the bank. Like Sapporo is one of the biggest brewers in the world. It's a massive conglomerate. It's, it, it has every resource as its disposal. It, it strains credulity to imagine that they, um, did not model this, did not project this in a way that, uh, would have allowed them to hedge risk appropriately. Now, if they didn't hedge the risk appropriately, that's on them. But again, like that brings it back to 
something that Sapporo did or didn't do and less about like these like, you know, invisible hand forces that have eventually came down and smacked anchor, you know, around so much that Sapporo had to cut bait. Well, this was a great chat. Dave, thank you for joining us. Um, we'll continue to follow your reporting um, and hope that you'll join us again sometime soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And obviously the situation's got like a lot more to it. So we'll, you know, we'll stay on it in VinePair and we'll stay on it at, uh, uh, I'll be tweeting while Twitter still works about it. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, <laughs> no, thanks tap so lines. much for having me. Yeah, you might have to do an emergency tap lines episode. <laughs> History in real time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, have a great weekend, guys. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So, the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.